Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another fabulous edition of, what is this class called, Reeves? Class. Not a class, Torah Studies. Torah Studies. Torah Studies, not bad at all. I think you're going to be my new announcer. Torah Studies, excellent work, Reeves. Okay, so tonight we actually have a topic that is so compelling I've been asked this question so many times. I can't even tell you how many times I've been asked this question. The reason why I can't tell you is because I haven't counted. But I know I've been asked this question a number of times over the years. And it's something that I've thought about also. You know, and, and if you read my email um, from this morning or from not too long ago, the question that is on the table and that many people ask is, was Abraham Jewish? Right? Was Avram Jewish? What's the status of Avram and Sarah and Isaac, Yitzchak and Rivka and Yaakov and Rachel and Leah, the matriarchs and the patriarchs, what was their status? We call Avram Avinu, we call Abraham the first Jew. But here's my question. You ready? Do we really mean it? Do we really mean that he was the first Jew? Or we're kind of saying like, He's the father of what eventually became known as Judaism. So kind of, you know, he backed into that role as the first Jew. You understand the distinction between the two options? You see what I'm saying as far as the difference? In other words, was he really Jewish? Like halakhically, from a Jewish legal status, was Abraham Jewish? Or was he, let me ask it a different way. Was he a Jew or was he Jew-ish? Right? Right? Was he like, eh, not really. Honorary Jew. Uh-uh. There you go. That's a good way of saying it. Was he a Jew or was he an honorary Jew? And again, honorary Jew would not be a mark of a negative, would not be a negative. In other words, it would be very understandable to say that he started a movement. He started a movement that eventually became known as Judaism at that point in time, there wasn't a thing called Jews. So, you know, he, um, he, sp he spawned the movement. So ultimately, there's going to be some attribution. It's going to be attributed to him, and he's going to get some credit and all that stuff. But in fact, you know, it, th no, there were no Jews then. Eventually, it became the Jewish people, and, and therefore he's the first. Or do we say, that's one option, or do we say, no, he was straight up Jewish. So here's the deal. And, and, and we'll see tonight, by the way, that this is not only a theoretical conversation, but actually as we, as we unfold this conversa conversation and this application, we're going to discover that there's a lot of relevant um, repercussions from this conversation. But here's the first thing you need to know. First thing you need to know about this topic is that it's the subject of a major dispute amongst the classic Jewish scholars, dating all the way back to the times of the Talmud and the times of the Mishnah. So we're talking about a good 1,500 to 1,800 years ago. There was a discussion about the status, about the status of Abraham and, and really all the patriarchs and matriarchs. We're just, I'm, I'm going to just use um, Abraham's name as a catch-all for, uh, for, the, for the larger discussion, right? So were they, actually, were they Jewish? Were they not? This, go, this is a debate that goes all the way back. First thing we're going to do is, I'm going to share my screen with you. And 
let's no this is like the beginning all right hold on we got some scrolling to do at least it's easier than like old school school scrolling this is fairly quick okay here we go Vieira. first thing we're going to do is explore a jewish legal text sorry explore a um a commentary that poses a legal issue. You know what? I'm going to stop sharing and I'm going to give you the introduction. A little background to this text. You guys remember the story of Jacob? Yeah, the third patriarch. Remember when he wanted to get married to Rachel? Right? So her father, Lavan, said, yeah, you can marry her, but you need to work for seven years and a whole thing. And then after seven years, there's the wedding. You remember what happened after the wedding? Remember what happened? Yeah, so the wedding happened. The next morning, what did, jo- what did Jacob discover? Whoops, it's not Rachel. He got, he got a different wife. Unbelievable, right? Who, who would have thought? He thought he was marrying Rachel, which was the younger sister. Next thing you know, he's marrying Leah, the older sister. So he goes to the father, his father-in-law, and he says, oh, yeah, of course, we give the older sister before the younger sister. That's what we do here. Anyway, what happens next? Next thing you know is Lavan says, you know, but you could also marry the younger sister if you work another seven years. I mean, like Lavan was the ultimate swindler. I mean, he was like the ultimate, you know, handler. He, he was just, just making deals and trying to rip people off. So, I mean, that, that, was his, that was his MO. So he basically got 14 years of work from Jacob, from Yaakov, instead of seven But the question that's asked in Jewish legal circles is, how do you marry two sisters, right? Have you ever wondered that question? That seems like very not kosher. It's it's against Jewish law. In fact, according to to a a Torah understanding, I mean, it's a form of incest. Amongst the incestuous or immoral relationships that are forbidden by Torah law, one of them is, Marrying two sisters. So it's, it, it's, it's a prohibition. So how did Jacob do it? Now, you might think, well, maybe that proves that Jacob didn't have the status of a Jew. You remember our question, like, were the patriarchs Jewish? So you might say, well, he, if he wasn't Jewish, then not subject to Torah law. So, hey, marry two sisters. Why not? But there's actually a problem with that line of thinking. Is everyone with me so far about this? Yes? Okay, there's a problem with this line of thinking, and that is that there was a mitzvah given to Adam of Adam and Ephraim, right? The mitzvah given, there were six mitzvot, six commandments given to Adam for all of humanity. A seventh was given to Noah, right? The seventh, by the way, was not eating um, a limb from a live animal. Because only Noah was given the permission to eat animals at all. God said, when you're eating animals, make sure they're still not alive. So, but that was the seventh mitzvah was given to Noah. And probably all seven were reiterated to Noah. We call them the seven Noahide laws. Spoiler alert, six were actually given from the beginning to Adam and Eve. Only the seventh was added later. But we call them all Noahide laws, I guess, because everything started again from Noah. So might as well just, you know, start, start there. Either way, here's my point. One of the seven, or original six actually, one of the original six prohibitions was against 
immoral, illicit, incestuous relationships, which would include, from our understanding, marrying two sisters. So you see where, where, where I'm going with this? Jacob is, does not have an out over here. How could Jacob have married two sisters? You want to tell me Torah wasn't given? <laughs> yeah, who cares? There were laws given to Adam and Eve. No, no um, illicit relationships. So you can't tell me you didn't get the Torah. Forget the Torah right now. You can't marry two sisters. So what's Jacob doing? So this is, that's all the introduction to text number one. Text one answers that question with a complete plot twist. You'll see what I mean. I'm going to uh, share my screen and let's explore. Oh, first of all, Rosita, good to see you. Welcome, welcome. Let me share my screen. This is going to be text number one from the Yefet Toar. Donna, please take it away. I'm going to make the screen a drop larger for ease of reading. Take it away, Donna Bogatin. Donna, our jewelry maven. All right, please unmute yourself and jump in. Jacob had the legal status of a Noahide, then surely he would not violate the prohibition against incest found in the seven laws of Noah. The matter then can be resolved simply. Jacob was the Jew, and the justification for his marriage to both Leah and Rachel is that technically they were not sisters. As a rule, a convert is considered born anew. The practical implication is that this newborn Jew no longer retains their family status. Uh, let's continue on the next page, top paragraph, clearly. Clearly, before their marriage to Jacob, both sisters converted, and so they were no longer considered relatives, and as such, were permitted to marry Jacob. I bet you didn't see that coming. I guarantee that you didn't see that little legal halachic twist coming. Let me explain. Hold on, Joy, one second. Let me explain what's going on here. In halacha, and by the way, this is, this is legit halacha. This is straight up halacha. When a person converts to Judaism, they, I, I mean, I, I don't want to use a phrase used by others. A person becomes, I'm going to make the phrase that drop different, born anew. See, I didn't, I didn't say exactly. Born anew, which means that they actually lose Halakhically, again, not, not according to, you know, other forms of law and law of the land and whatever, but they lose, on a Jewish legal level, halakhic level, they lose their prior family status, if you will. In other words, they become almost a new family, which means that if one sister converted and then another sister converted, so each one becomes a new in, the, in a Jewish family, and they lose halakhically their status as sisters. Does that make sense? I, you know what? I don't know if that makes sense ever, but you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> hold on, hold on. Was that Chazza? One second. Hold on, one second, one second, one second. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because um, we, we, we have a question in queue. But here's the point halakhically, halakhically, it becomes like a new, a new creation, like a new, a new entity, a new, a new identity, right? It's like joining the Witness Protection Program. I'm kidding. I have no idea about that. Um, of course I'm Rabbi Ari. Sure. But here's the point. Um, it's, it's a new identity, and therefore, halachically, one could say, the sisters aren't actually sisters anymore. 
Well, who are they? They're each, each one on their own. They converted to Judaism. Therefore, they're no, they no longer have that family connection. And therefore, according to the Efetoar, that's the only way to explain how Jacob married two sisters. Because if he was operating by Noahide law, and there was no conversion, there was no Judaism, no conversion, because he wasn't Jewish, they weren't Jewish, then it's incestuous. It's an illicit immoral relationship. The only way you can get around this is by saying that they were Jewish, they did convert, and that's why they lost that status. All right, Dr. Maxi, go ahead. So my question is, Laban was Rebecca as an Isaac's wife's brother, correct? Correct. So they were not Jewish? They were not Jewish, no. Okay. okay. The way we would explain... Rebecca had converted when she married Isaac. Correct. Her brother, right? Her brother would have been... I mean, they were family, right? They were mishpacha, but they wouldn't have been... But that conversion would not have been in in that family, right? On that side. And the daughters, i.e. Rachel and Leah, they would not, they would not have been... Those daughters were not Jewish. Correct. And when they each in turn converted, again, according to this halachic um, interesting thing, I don't know what else to call it other than interesting thing, so it becomes a new, a new family. By the way, I, I, I may, maybe I want to forestall a question that some of you are thinking. This does not, by, in, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, indicate or, see, or, or imply, this should not imply that there's a halachic loophole where you can you know, do a conversion and then, and then like, you know, mess around with these types of things. Again, this was something that happened to Jacob. This is not something that he initiated. Um, and, uh, and halakhically, it was permissible, but it's not something that's done, first of all, primarily because it's not, I mean, even if halakhically it's okay, the optics, using a modern term, the optics aren't there, and that's something that halakha takes into consideration. But anyway, um, in this case, it was, it was all trickery anyway. Chaz and Ben, one second, one second. Uh, um, let's, we have a, yeah. So, so I have a couple of, couple of questions. Number one, um, when, uh, you know, uh, 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 I taught Hebrew school since I was like 14 years old. So, so back then, the question that you asked all of the, all of the Hebrew school students was, Mi haya hayudi harishel. Right. Who was the first Jew? Of course, the answer was, Abraham was the first Jew. But, but, but. Back then, when Abraham became whatever you want to call him, he was not a Jew because the word Jew comes from Yehuda, right? And and it's Judah. Right. So so Judah didn't come before Abraham, obviously. Right. So we call Abraham 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 Ha'ivri, the the one who who crossed over basically. Right. And and that's the so now this thing about I was going to say Baba Nisus, but I don't want to be that. Um, that this thing about about the, them being converted, there's no record that they converted to become Jewish, is there? I, at least I don't remember any record. You you didn't learn the you didn't learn the Yefetar before. That's true. See, I, 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 had you learned the Efet Torah, you would have said, "Oh, there's a there's a tradition that they converted." Well, if I'd have been, if I'd have learned the Efet Torah, 
I've been just as skeptical as I am about Jacob anyway. So, but listen, Chazen, it's well documented that you have a beef with Jacob. So the fact that you have a beef with Jacob, that's old news. That's old news. I admit it. It's just like, like you know, like Trump says he won the election. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on one second. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got I to gotta mute you because we don't do politics here. I, I, my apologies, but this is a politics-free zone, and we don't, we don't do that. So we got to keep it a safe Torah space. All right, let's move on because we have a lot to get to. And yeah, let's get to critical question, then we got to move on. Go, Richard, Susan, quickly. Okay, I thought <clears throat> Moshe was the first Jew. Okay, listen, I, I hear you. This is, what we're, this is exactly what we're exploring. Who was the first Jew and what's the status? Let's move on because we have a, we have a ton to get to. All right, I'm going to share my screen again. Did Anu try to get in? Sorry. No, no, not yet. I didn't see I didn't see her get in. All right, let's continue with text number two. Here we have a different position. This is coming from the Mizrahi, another commentary from centuries ago. And here we have a conversation about the mitzvah of Mila, the mitzvah of circumcision. Now there's a story, again, another story in the Torah. That is a very, um, it's an interesting story. It's a bit of a vague story, but it goes that when, when, God tells, when God tells Moses, when God tells Moses to go to Egypt and rescue the Jewish people and bring the plagues and all that stuff, Moses initially says, nah, it's not for me, etc. And then, and then Moses acquiesces and he begins his journey with his wife and a child. There was a newborn child. And the Torah tells us that there was an angel of God that came to kill him, and uh, and and something happened, and the and the 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 angel of death was thwarted, according to the way we understand the Torah and the way the commentators explain it. Essentially, they Moses did not circumcise Moses did not circumcise um, his son, and because he was uncircumcised, so the angel of death wanted to kill him. Until his wife Tzipporah went and gave a bris milah, gave a circumcision to the son. Fine. So the question that's on the table that the Mizrahi asks, and I'm going to read this text number two myself. He says, how could Moses rationalize his failure in performing the godly commandment of circumcision? In other words, why didn't Moses circumcise his son? What right, the Mizrahi says, did he have to disobey a direct Godly command given to all his descendants, to all descendants of Abraham. So the Mizrahi asks a question that pretty much all the commentaries ask, which is, yeah, the, the story goes that Moses did not circumcise his son. His life was therefore in danger until his wife, Sipporah, went ahead and she took matters into her own hands, literally, and circumcised their son. Well, the obvious question is, why didn't he do the bris? And the classic answer that's given is... Because they were about to travel to Egypt to go to Pharaoh and demand, let my people go. And we know that it's dangerous to do a bris and run, right? Have bris will travel, not a good idea, right? It's not a good idea to bris and head down to Egypt right away. So therefore, so therefore, he waited. He figured he's going to first go down to Egypt. And once he's in Egypt, he'll do all the, the he'll do the bris. So the Mizrahi says, look at the second paragraph. True, the Torah instructs the Jew never to perform a mitzvah when it can endanger a life. But at that point in time, the Torah had yet to be given. 
In other words, the, and I'm not. I'm going to just stop sharing right now because we got what we needed. The Mizrahi is stuck with a question. He says, "Why didn't Moses circumcise? And if you tell his son, and if you tell me because they were traveling and it's dangerous, well, the only way we know." That you don't do a mitzvah when it's dangerous is because the Torah tells us that you should live with the mitzvah and not kill yourself over a mitzvah. But the Torah hadn't been given yet. But the commandment to circumcise had been given. So the Mizrahi's perspective is that Avram, Abraham, had not, did not have the status of a Jew. He had the status of a B'nai Noach, of, a, of, a, of a, the descendants of Noah, who was commanded on his own I'm sorry, this is not, yeah, this is even Moses. I'm sorry, not Abraham, Moses. Moses had the status of a B'nai Noach, of a, of a descendant of Noah, because it was before Sinai. And like Abraham, he was not Jewish. But as a descendant of Abraham, he had a mitzvah to perform, which is circumcision. The fact that it was dangerous, the Torah later says, after Sinai tells us that when, it's a, when, life, is a danger, when life is in danger, you, don't, you, you, can, you can suspend the mitzvah. But the Torah had not yet been given. And that dispensation is given to the Jew with Torah, but it wasn't given to Abraham or Moses. So therefore, Moses should have done the circumcision, and that's why he was faulted for not doing it. The Mizrahi's point, his question, and his whole point is predicated on his perspective that indeed Abraham does not have the full-fledged status as a Jew, neither did Moses before the Sinai experience. Again, what I'm trying to represent, what I'm trying to, to demonstrate is that we have very strong opinions from classic commentaries, classic texts on both sides of the issue. Some say very strongly that indeed Abraham and Moses at all, they were all, and Jacob, they were Jewish. And some say they did not have the status of Jews. Joy, go ahead. So why was Moses not considered Jewish? Because he was born to Jews who were enslaved, right? No, so again, according to this understanding, Jew, the Jews began, the definition of a Jew began at Mount Sinai. That's the okay, point. Okay, okay. So, th And that's really the whole question. Is there a concept of a Jew before Mount Sinai, the giving of the Torah, right? Or not? So some say that yes, there is, and that Abraham, therefore, is the first Jew, and Isaac was Jewish, and Jacob was Jewish, and whoever married into the families and embraced that, that way of living was Jewish, and Moses was Jewish, and the Jews in Egypt were Jewish, Right, and some say you couldn't have, you can't have Jews before Sinai. What kind of, yeah, we call them Jews, we call them honorary Jews or whatever it is. We, you know, you can call them whatever you want, but they didn't have the the, the legal status as Jews until the Sinai experience. That's actually the question on the ground. I'm going to share again my screen with you, and let's look at the next text, which is text number three. Let's ask Adina Malka, please read. Nachmanis Ramban, text number three. Don't forget to unmute yourself before you uh, before you go ahead. Ramban Nachmanis, from the moment. You got it. Oops, it looks from like you. The there we go. Yeah, from the moment. From the moment. From the moment Abraham entered into a covenant with God. He and all his descendants were henceforth Jews and no longer considered Gentiles. 
So that is the opinion of Ramban Nachmanides. Again, I told you there are strong opinions. He says, absolutely, the moment Abraham went, entered into the covenant with Hashem, he was considered a Jew. By the way, in, in the Ramban, he doesn't call them Yehudim, Jews, like Judeans, but rather Hayu Yisrael, Israelites. Again, Yisrael also didn't exist because Yisrael is Jacob. So it's a few generations later. Nonetheless, colloquially, the point is, you know, using just our modern language to bring out a point that Abraham did have the status of a Jew. And as um, the Derech HaTarim writes in text number four, um, this I think we get, Rosita, please read text number four. Truth be told. Don't forget to unmute. Truth be told, this argument stretches all the way back to Talmudic times. Each opinion mentioned above has great backing to their claims. The Talmud supports the view of Nachmanides and Yefetor, while the Midrash supports the French scholars and the Rabbi Eliyahu Mizrahi. Yeah, and, but, and, and uh, most of these we quoted before. Essentially, this is what we do know. Text 4 kind of summarizes the bottom line, which is what we know. The Derech HaTarim says there are opinions on both sides of the coin. Some say that Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov and Sarah, Rivka, Rachele, that they were all Jewish. And some say they did not have the status of Jews. I know I use the word Jew, but I don't mean specifically uh, from the tribe of Jew. I mean the, the status of what we call a Jew. As opposed to others that say no, they were they were no they were um, they were Noahides, if you will, that uh, that that just uh, believed in God and monotheism and that sort of thing. Okay, so that's the debate. But what's interesting is that whichever position you take, the fact of the matter doesn't change. Well, one fact doesn't change, and that is that the patriarchs and the matriarchs kept Torah and they studied Torah. And this is something that's brought down in countless sources. And once again, I will share my screen. The Talmud discusses this in Kedushin, Yoma, various tractates. Donna, please read text number five. Text number five, please. Abraham, our forefather. Abraham, our forefather, fulfilled the entire Torah before it was given, as the verse states, because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So the Talmud says that Abraham kept the whole Torah even before it was given. Text number six, this is from Tractayuma. Fred, please read this one, Rabbi Chama. Rabbi Chama, son of Rabbi Chanina, said from the first days of our forefathers, they were never left without a yeshiva. So whichever way, whether you want to call them halachically Jewish or not halachically Jewish, it's really, on some level, it's, it's maybe not 100%. I mean, they're, they're, it is relevant on some level. But for right now, either way, we know that they did the mitzvot and they studied Torah in some sort of form, which leads us really to the next question. First question was, did they have halachic Jewish status? We can't answer that right now because it's the great, adult, the great, great, great ones debated this. You and I are not going to decide one way or the other and come to a conclusion tonight. It, it, stands, it stands as a classic Jewish debate, whether they had the status of Jews. But what we do know, what all sides agree on, is that they did the mitzvot and they studied the Torah on some level, even before it was given. And the question is, 
What exactly does that mean? What kind of Torah did they study? What kind of mitzvot were they doing? What does that mean? And furthermore, furthermore, if they did have the Torah and they did do the mitzvot, so then what happened at Sinai? In other words, if they had it the whole time, so what was Sinai? And if Sinai added something new, well, what was new? What was old? What, what, was, what did it look like before? And what did it look like after? In other words, whether or not they were Jewish, whether or not they had the legal status of, of Jews, what we do know is that they performed mitzvot and they studied Torah. So two questions. What kind of Torah? What kind of mitzvot? That's question number one. And question number two is, if they did have Torah and mitzvot, then what, what do we get at Sinai that was new? Why, why do we call it Matan Torah? What happened at Sinai was we got the Torah. Apparently, it leaked before. Right? We got the Torah. It was available to download way before that, centuries before. You could download the Torah. Yeah, they were studying it. So what's going on? All right. So here's, here's the deal. The way we're going to frame it is by looking at a very interesting statement from the Talmud. Actually, oh, let me stop sharing for a second. I'll ask you a question. Which is more, which is more um, valuable? To do something positive um, that you were not asked to do. In other words, you, you decided on your own to do something. Or is it more powerful to do something that you're required to do, right? That you are obligated to do. Which is greater? Is it like, I'm trying to think of an example. All right, I think you get the question, right? Is it, is it, is it, is it a greater thing to um, unilaterally, unilaterally do something nice or to do something that you kind of have to do, which is, which is a greater accomplishment? Which do you think? Well, I think when it, if the one that you're required to do is accomplishing. Why explain? Because if, if I do it from my own reasoning and my own, uh, from my own desires, that those can change. Those are limited. But if it's required, well, I'm assuming it's coming from a higher source than me, I can rely upon it, and, it um, and it's eternal, and it's not going to change. But if it's coming from me, I could change. Okay, good, good, good. So give, give me what, Ray, what else do you have? Ray, what do you have? Uh, I think that if you do something without being required to do it, it's more of a mitzvah than it's written in a thou shalt do it. Tell me why you say that. What's the rationale? <laughs> no, I'm asking, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but explain why. Why do, why do you think that it's greater to do something that, you, that you're not asked over something that you are asked? Just because you're not asked to do it, you're doing it out of the kindness of your heart. Oh, you... so, so it's more of an act of kindness and generosity that you didn't have to do it. You're still doing it. You're stepping up and up to the plate and over you're and extending yourself over and above. That's a good phrase, over and above. Right. Good. Right. So the Talmud actually discusses this. And the Talmud says that at first glance, you might say exactly what Ray said. That, at <laughs> first glance, <laughs> right? You might say that it's greater to do something 
that you didn't have to do going over and above, you know, above and beyond what you had to do. And doing something that you're required to do, yeah, I mean, you, you had to do it. So, like, what, what's, the, what's the big mitzvah there? However, when we look at it, when we, when we think about it on a deeper level, the Talmud says we can conclude that it's actually greater to do something that you are obligated to do. And I want to give you a psychological explanation for this. You know, when you don't have to do something, it's easy. It's sometimes easier to go above and beyond. Right? Let's talk about family and strangers. Who is it easier to be nice to? Think about it. Think about it. I'm, I'm asking the tough questions, but you know I'm right. It's so much easier... It's so much easier to be chivalrous to somebody, to a stranger. It's so much easier to hold the door at Starbucks for somebody coming in. And in your own house, <laughs> fend for yourself, right? No way I'm helping you out. I mean, that's the way it is. The way it is all too often is that, that when we're almost obligated, right, to care for each other, eh, that's harder. Then when we're not obligated, it's almost easier to step out of our to go above and beyond when we don't have to because then we look good, right? We look good when we don't have to. When we have to, well, we know that if we do it, I mean, what do we do? We just did what we had to. So that's no fun. Are you with me on the psychological end of it? Okay. But on a, on a spiritual level, there's another idea, and that's what, uh, what Sarah mentioned, which is a, a beautiful idea, which we're going to develop. Bev, go ahead. Don't forget to unmute. So it's also if you're doing something because you're told to do it, it takes faith, it takes amuna. Yes, yes, correct, correct. If you're just doing it on your own, you believe in yourself. If you're doing it, if you're doing something that someone else or something else, right, God tells you to do, then it, it, you lean on, uh, on a deeper energy. Excellent. Now, let's explore. So I'm just planting a seed here. Now, let's explore... The, 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 the distinction between the mitzvot that were done before Sinai, because we read before that Abraham uh, did all the mitzvot and they studied Torah for all the times of, uh, of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, they were studying Torah and doing mitzvot. So what, what did that look like and what does this look like and what's the difference? So I want to share with you this core idea because, again, these are fundamental ideas that we're talk, touching upon tonight. Was Abraham Jewish? Um, what happened before Sinai, what happened with Sinai, after Sinai, what was that moment of the giving of the Torah really all about? These are big ideas in Judaism that if we have clarity, it really helps so many different areas um, in our just understanding of, of contextualizing this whole thing called Judaism. So before Sinai, what were they doing? What, what, what did mitzvot look like? So the short answer is they looked radically different, radically different, than what we know as mitzvot today. So, I want to share with you a question. The question is asked, um, oh, sorry, first of all, text number seven from the Talmud Tract Kedushin. Take a look at what the Talmud says. Uh, the Talmud says, greater is the one who is commanded to do a mitzvah and does it than one who is not commanded to do a mitzvah and does it. Right? So it's greater to be commanded and to do than not to be commanded, but to do it anyway. And that was our discussion now. But here is the question that's asked by the um, Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe. And he, said, he asked the following about the mitzvot before Sinai. He says, how did our ancestors perform the mitzvot? 
Tefillin, for example, contained parchment scrolls recounting the miracles and stories of the Exodus from Egypt. How then could they have worn tefillin when the Exodus had yet to occur? Right? He asked the question. Abraham did all the mitzvot. Yeah, sure he did. He wrapped tefillin. What kind of tefillin did he have? Right? How kind of tefillin did he have if there was no Exodus? The tefillin talk about the Exodus. So what kind of, what kind of tefillin did he have? Look at this. The same could be asked of the mitzvot matzah and Passover and to live in a sukkah, which commemorate our hasty departure from Egypt and the huts we later dwelled in while traversing the desert. So the Rebbe Rashab asked the question, how would it be possible for these acts to be performed before the events they commemorate? And I think this is what Chazim Ben was asking before. What are we saying that the Avot, the patriarchs, did the mitzvot? What kind of mitzvahs did they do? Tefillin, what kind of exodus? Right? Passover, there was no exodus. Sukkot, there was no exodus. There was no huts in the desert. This is before, hundreds of years before. So look, we'll look at the conclusion. And again, I'm telling you, these are fundamental things that we need to know. Therefore, we are compelled to say, says the fifth Chabad Rebbe, that their Torah study and mitzvah performance, they were not focused on the material. Instead, they were aimed to connect spiritually and emotionally with God. They performed, performed each mitzvah to bond with God in each unique way. Listen, that paragraph is not a great translation from the original, but this last paragraph hopefully will solidify this idea. The mitzvah of Tefillin... Rabbi, they made, on, on Sukkot, they made a lulav shake. Oh, exactly. A, a palm, uh, a little palm, palm special. I'm with you. Take a look. The mitzvah of Tefillin, for example, look what he says. The mitzvah of Tefillin... Remember, tefillin, you put a box on your arm near your heart and on your head, above your, above your brain. The midst of tefillin, for example, represents the quest to live according to the dictates of the mind while taming the temptations of the heart. So laying tefillin for our ancestors meant attaining its spiritual significance. Any accompanying physical act was only to express the specific mitzvah endeavor they were working on and experiencing. And I need to stop sharing and speak with you directly. What he's saying is, when we say in the Talmud that Abraham studied Torah and Abraham did the mitzvot, he wasn't taking black leather boxes with straps, with parchment about the Exodus and wrapping it on his arm. That's not what we mean when we say that he did all the mitzvot. What it means, and again, these are fundamental concepts that we need to know. What it means is that he accomplished the spiritual idea of the mitzvah in his own way. In other words, if tefillin, which it is, if the, per, if the spiritual energy of tefillin is about aligning the heart, sorry, the heart and the mind, so that the mind is controlling the heart. We're living mindfully, we're living intentionally, and our heart is not getting carried away. And that's the meditation and significance of tefillin. If that's what tefillin is, then you bet that Abraham was wrapping tefillin, wrapping tefillin in his own way. He was living in alignment, mind and heart. He was living with the same energy. And as we'll see soon, Jacob even did something performed some physical action to express it, but not necessarily with the same leather boxes that we have today. So yeah, the patriarchs and matriarchs and, and studied Torah and did mitzvot, etc. 
but not the same practical way that we do it. This will be highly significant. In a moment, let me share my screen once again for the next text, which is really important. This is about Jacob. Take a look at this text. This is from the Torah, by the way. This is straight up Genesis. This is no commentary. This is just the verse. The verses. This is um, in, in, in connection with Jacob. We mentioned Jacob before. He was working for his father-in-law for 14 years. He worked for another seven years. He worked for 20 years, plus, maybe six years, six years, seven years. He worked many years. And every, at every turn, his father-in-law was tricking him and trying to get, the, get, get one over on him. So here we see this. Jacob is trying to get the animals to be born spotted and striped and speckled because those are the ones in the flock that he can keep. So what does he do? And Jacob took for himself moist rods of trembling poplar. I don't know what trembling poplar is. I guess when you scare it, right? That was a joke. And hazelnut and chestnut. And he peeled, look at this, look at this. He peeled white streaks upon the rods, bearing the white that was on the rods. You see what happened there? You know what that looks like? Tefillin on the arm. Are you with me? If you peel a rod and you have a spiral shape, let's say it's a dark color stick and you peel and it becomes white or you reveal the white in the background in a spiral shape, it looks like the tefillin wrapped in the arm. And he thrust, oh, I'm sorry, that's my commentary, or that's the commentary of it. Let's read the verses. And he thrust the rods that he had peeled into the gutters in the watering troughs where the animals would come to drink opposite the other animals. And they would come into heat when they came to drink. And the flocks came into heat by the rods, and the animals bore ringed, spotted, and striped young. In other words, looking at the at this striped rods that he threw into the watering troughs, when the animals would get excited and they would mate, so they were looking at the rods, and because, again, uh, don't ask me, I can't say again because I didn't say this before, but don't ask me, if don't try this at home. But when they looked at the rods and they were mating, they ended up giving birth to animals that were ringed, spotted, and you, you, you guessed it, striped. So that's what it says in the Torah. Comes along the... Comes along the Rebbe to explain this. And this is also true, this is also found in other mystical texts, but the Rebbe says it in a very nice way explains how the patriarch's service, spiritual service of God, also had a physical embodiment, as we saw just now from the story of, 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 of peeling the rods. Let's, let's jump in. Our forefathers' divine service was not wholly divorced from physicality. We find clear examples where the mitzvah was performed in, a physical, in the physical form we're familiar with now. For example, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is recorded baking matzo for Passover. In this week's Torah portion, by the way, he, he baked, uh, baked matzah for the angels that came to visit him. Uh, right before Sodom was overturned. At another time, when Isaac requested Esau to prepare him food, the Torah describes them, his meal as being two kid goats. The Talmud points out that one person certainly cannot eat two goats in one sitting. Right? This was for the blessing. Rather, since it was Passover, he designated one goat for the Paschal offering and the other goat as the, ge ge as the general festival sacrifice. The physical act, however... So there was a physical act, but the physical act before Sinai was beside the point for them. Instead, because they were solely dedicated to God, our forefathers' entire beings were thoroughly permeated by the powerful connection they were experiencing. Even their bodily limbs expressed what was going on inside. Thus, the patriarchs are described as 
God's chariot. It follows that their spiritual endeavors found expression in physical matter as well, but such material expression was not the main point. In other words, what we said before is true. The patriarchs studied Torah and did the mitzvot in a spiritual way, but because they were so filled with the Spirit, they also did some physical actions as well, but that wasn't the primary component of their mitzvah. The primary component was the spiritual meditation and connection. It also... Um, leaked into the physical experience, but it was mainly a spiritual action. So while there, were, there was always some material manifestation of each spiritual journey, the physical component back inside, the physical component of their mitzvot remained a distant second, secondary to the lofty intent, the kavanah behind it. Using the sticks example, like we just mentioned before with Jacob, there indeed was the material expression of the, of the spiritual mitzvah of Tefillin, the sticks, yet to Jacob, the physical dimensions and characteristics of those sticks were of no importance. It says in the good books that Jacob peeling the sticks was the way he put on Tefillin. He didn't wrap Tefillin, but he peeled sticks. But when he peeled sticks, there was the same spiritual accomplishment that happened. So what's the point for us? The point for us is, I mean, not for us yet, not, not the life lesson yet. We're not there yet. But what, what, what we can extract from this is simply this. The patriarchs did mitzvot on a spiritual dimension. They tapped into the spiritual energy of the mitzvot, and they connected with God in each, with each mitzvah spiritual path, and because they were filled and imbued with that spiritual energy at that moment, they also did some sort of physical action as well because it's kind of like when you're happy, you might walk with a, uh, a skip in your step, but the happiness is, is an emotion, right? So they connected spiritually, but he also was peeling sticks. Contrast that with the way you and I do mitzvot, with the post-Sinai experience. You see, post-Sinai the roles are reversed. The primary is the physical mitzvah. You can't peel sticks and call it tefillin. It's not a thing. You have to have tefillin. The right color, the right shape, the right size, the right parchment, the right straps, the right number of twirls on the, or of wraps on the arm. It's got to be exact, precise. A mezuzah. You can't just you know, tap into the energy of divine protection and, and that's, no, it's got to be a scroll, handwritten on parchment, black ink, rolled up on a, a place just so on the wall at such an angle. Our mitzvot today are completely 180 degrees different than before Sinai. Before Sinai, the primary component was the spiritual energy and the physical piece of it was just some sort of representation of it. But primarily, it was a spiritual moment. Today, the mitzvot are primarily physical actions. Of course, of course, the physical actions mean something spiritually. But most of our efforts, most of our time, most of our intention is focused on getting the physical actions right when it comes to doing a mitzvah. Are you with me in how the, the roles are flipped almost? In other words, every mitzvah has a physical dimension and a spiritual dimension. Before Sinai... What the patriarchs did was focus on the spiritual piece of it, and the physical piece of it was secondary. Now, it's almost reversed, where we focus mostly on the physical action of the mitzvah, 
And the spiritual component, of course, it's good to have it in mind also, but the main thing of a mitzvah is getting it right, doing it right. You know, you're sitting in a sukkah, make sure it's a kosher sukkah, right? You're, you're shaking a lulav in an esrach, you got to make sure you have the right plants. You can't buy a lemon and say, well, it looks close enough, let me give it a shake. It's not, it, you didn't do the mitzvah. But before Sinai, you could peel a rod and call it tefillin. Are you with me on that? So here's my question. Which seems to be a better experience? The one that, which mitzvah experience seems more authentic and genuine? Pre-Sinai or post-Sinai? The one that focuses on the spiritual meaning or the one that focuses on the mechanics of it? Which one seems to be more in tune with what a mitzvah ought to be, perhaps? You and I, huh? Pre? Pre? You and I could argue one second. The patriarchs had it right. Abraham had it right. I'm sorry, Rabbi, they didn't call it tefillin at the time. No, no, but what tefillin was or is, they channeled into on that energy level. Foreshadowed it. Foreshadowed it. So one might argue and say, and I think a, a pretty strong argument could be, one second, what happened? We had this spiritual path, a spiritual connection. The physical was secondary because, yeah, of course it's about the spiritual connection. So then we got, we got the Torah at Sinai. And suddenly now everything's different. Now you got a set of rules that you have to follow to the T to get it right. And meanwhile, you're so worried about getting the action right that sometimes you don't even think about the meditation. So which is better? It was better before. But my friends, this ties into the same argument as before. Which is greater? To be not commanded and do it or to be commanded and do it? Let's get back to that as we'll see these two points connect. And we're going to tie everything together. I know there's a few loose ends. Don't worry. Everything's going to be wrapped together in just a moment. Getting back to that other, other debate, which is greater, right? Is it greater to be commanded and to do it or to just do it of your own, you know, free choice? And, and there's an argument to say, if you do it on your own, it's much greater. The reason why we conclude, the Talmud concludes that it's not greater. Not right now. The reason why we conclude that it's not greater is because of this, what Sarah said before. When you choose, when you and I choose of our own free choice to do a mitzvah, to do a good deed, right? Who are we connecting with? Ourselves. When, we, when we're commanded by God and we follow God's command, who are we connecting with? God. Right. That's the key difference. Again, if God says, wrap those straps and you wrap the straps... So whose will are you following? God. If I was never commanded to wrap straps and I say, you know what I want to do? I want to wrap straps for God. Whose will am I connecting with? My own. I decided to wrap straps for God. That's my choice. When I do it, all I'm you're, we're always connecting with something and someone. In this case, if, I, if I'm the one coming up with the big ideas, I'm connecting with myself. If God comes up with the big ideas and I do it, I'm connecting with God. So what's the difference? The difference is when I connect with myself, I'm limited, right? I'm a finite being with finite intellect, with finite perception. And I, with my finite brain, come up with an, with an idea, with a strategy to connect with God. Sounds fantastic to me. And I do it and I execute it. I do it. I conceived it. I executed it. Fantastic. I pat myself on the shoulder. Wonderful. You know what, what it was all about? 
me. Now, I, I say it's about God, but ultimately, how do you know that God was involved? <laughs> Who told you God was involved? You wanted. It's about you, <laughs> Ellie. <laughs> hey, bud. <laughs> right? So it's you, des- you decided. You had an idea. You decided. You came up with a strategy. You executed it. It's all about you. Right? Where was God? You did it for God. Who says God wanted it? But when you do a mitzvah that God tells you to do, that's clear. That's clear. God. All right. God clearly wants us to do it. And therefore, and therefore, when we do it, we become connected. Now, that's, that's not a small thing. It's a huge thing. Because human beings are inherently limited and finite. And so when we, when we connect with ourselves, we're just staying inside that same loop, that same closed space. But when we do a mitzvah, and the mitzvah is coming from the Ribona Shalom, as Chazan Ben just said, coming from the master of the universe, coming from the infinite God, from the Ein Sof. So what's happening is we're getting out of the box, we're breaking that glass ceiling, so to speak, of existence, of creation, and we're connecting we're connecting with God Almighty, with the infinite. That is, that is the, the deeper significance of a mitzvah. And by the way, that's why, I, I don't mean to say this by the way, this is the significant idea. That's why it's greater to do a mitzvah that's been commanded than to do a mitzvah of your own free will, of your own innovation. So Abraham decided on his own to do these spiritual actions for God. And that was great. But you know what? Ultimately, he connected with himself and he stayed inside the parameters and limitations of created existence. But after, and this was true with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the the tribes and even Moses before Sinai. It's only from that moment that the Torah was given at Sinai and God said, at this point, I demand that you do this. I command you to do it. And now we do it. So it seems like, ah, now you have to. Now it doesn't count. No, no, no. Now it really means something. Now it really means something. Because when we do a mitzvah that God commands, now we break through, we smash through that glass ceiling. We smash through the limitations of created existence. And now we touch creator. And at the same time, you know what else happens? When we access Creator, the infinite energy of Creator, we're able to radically alter the state of physical entities, which affects the items that we do a mitzvah with. Let me explain. I mentioned before about the sticks of Jacob that he used symbolically for wrapping tefillin. But you know what Jacob could do after he, he, he... Um, peeled the sticks, he was able to take those sticks and throw them away in the garbage or just toss them in the woods or whatever in the field because the sticks did not become holy. The sticks were not transformed. Because when you do it on your own, because when you have your own notion of what, what connection is, it's, 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 it's very noble and it's not a knock. But it doesn't access the infinite because you are not infinite. So how can you conjure up infinite? 
So it doesn't access infinite. Because it doesn't access infinite, it can't radically transform matter into spirit. But when a mitzvah comes from God, when a mitzvah comes from the infinite source, and we harness that infinite power by doing that mitzvah, then that infinite energy is channeled into the item with which we perform the mitzvah. And that's why the tefillin become holy. You can't throw them out. You have to bury them. That's why the Sefer Torah, the parchment, becomes holy. That's why the mezuzah becomes holy. And that's why in the Code of Jewish Law, I'm going to share with you a, a, very, a very interesting text from the Code of Jewish Law. That's why not only the mitzvahs become holy, but even the accessories of a mitzvah become holy. Take a look at text 11. This will blow you away, perhaps. Articles of holiness, such as the container of a Torah scroll, the case of a mezuzah, the straps of the tefillin, the box into which they put a Torah scroll or a single book of Torah, a chair, a special chair, upon which they set a Torah scroll, and a curtain that they hang in front of the Holy Ark, right? the parochet, all of these are considered sacred. All of these are considered sacred and require burial when no longer able to be used. According to the Code of Jewish Law, you cannot discard your tefillin boxes and your tefillin straps and the curtains uh, in front of the ark and the cover of a Sefer Torah, the mantle of, the mantle of a Sefer Torah, Torah scroll. You cannot wantonly discard these things. Why? Because they become Tashmishe Kedusha, Tashmishe Mitzvah. They become the articles that are accessories of a mitzvah. And the mitzvah becomes transformed and the articles that are, the accessories become transformed. And thus, we have our final idea. And that is, the difference before pre-Sinai and post-Sinai is the difference bef between transformation, no transformation and transformation. Before Sinai, there was no commandment from God. It came from humanity, Adam and e not Adam, sorry, Abraham and Sarah's, and it came from their own choice. They wanted to connect with God. And so they connected the way they knew how, which is spiritually. But it was their own path. Therefore, it was inherently limited to themselves and the extent that they could climb on their own. It didn't have the infinite magic sauce, so to speak, because it didn't come from God. And therefore, it was primarily spiritual and did not have an effect, a transformative effect on matter itself. Post-Sinai, it's different. Post-Sinai, God says, do my mitzvah. When we do God's mitzvah, we're touching, <coughs> accessing the infinite energy. When we access the infinite energy, we have the power of transformation in our hands. So when we wrap tefillin, the straps, the leather straps become transformed into a mitzvah art article. When we, any mitzvah that we do becomes transformed into a holy item. And that's post-Sinai. So in the final analysis, there is a huge distinction between pre-Sinai, Judaism, if it was called Judaism or not, whatever that was, pre-Sinai Judaism and post-Sinai Judaism. Pre-Sinai Judaism was driven by human initiative. And therefore, it was inherently limited by human limitations. And therefore, it didn't have the human transformation. It didn't have the transformational capacity of the mitzvahs that we, that we have today. Whereas post-Sinai, it's driven by God. It, is, it has an infinite power. 
and therefore has the power to trans utterly transform the very matter, the very fabric of the universe. And that's why post-Sinai, we do focus on the details. And you and I might think, that's oh, a distraction. Let's, let's, you need to wrap tefillin to meditate. Meditate without the tefillin. Yeah, you could say that. But then we're still stuck in our own heads. How do we know we're touching God? How do we know that our meditation is really divine and it's not something our brains are conjuring up? How do we know? But when we do a mitzvah, yes, with the parameters of the mitzvah, doing it exactly right as God prescribed, then we know that we're accessing through the, those limitations. Paradoxically, we're accessing the infinite energy of God. And by doing so, we transform that limited matter that we're engaging with. So where does this leave us? This leaves us with a fundamental understanding. And this is something that comes up frequently in classes. And it's something that I always, I try to think about in my own life. And I always, I always enjoy sharing this as a challenge. And that is, there are a lot of good things that we do because they're in our comfort zone. A lot of mitzvot that we're more than happy to do because they make sense to us. But here's the question. Can we stretch ourselves to do a mitzvah that we are not on board with? In other words, that is not something that we intuitively or instinctually um, gravitate to or that, that resonates with us. Can we do a mitzvah? Can we stretch outside of ourselves to do a mitzvah that challenges the way we think? And the only reason why we're doing it is because God said. And that might seem like a lower experience to us. Right? It's so much better to do the mitzvah that we're, we're on board with because then we're more excited about it and we get it. And the mitzvahs that we don't get, what we're just going to do robotically or just do because I have to, that, that, that seems like a lower experience. But tonight we learned how all that's flipped. It's precisely in those experiences that maybe we're not completely sold on. But we do it anyway because God said so. That we're able to finally break out of our human box, our limitations, touch the infinite, and transform the world in an unprecedented way. Every mitzvah that we do is infinitely valuable. Let's never forget that. But the mitzvot that challenge us really bring out the infinite power of the mitzvah. Because those are the mitzvot that we only do because God said so. And when God said so, and because we do it because God said so, we're channeling God's infinite blessing into our lives. My blessing to all of us is that we should have the strength, we should have the courage and the faith to surrender a little bit in one, one more area, one more mitzvah, one time even. Just try it. Like I tell my kids with food sometimes, and they don't always listen to me. But just try it. You might not like it, whatever, just try it. Just go for it. One mitzvah, one time that's out of your comfort zone. And know this, that when you do that, you're extending beyond yourself, beyond, human, beyond the human limitations. And then you connect with the infinite. You should know one more thing just before we close out. There was one mitzvah that Abraham got that replicated the post-Sinai experience that came from God, that he didn't initiate on his own, that came exclusively as a commandment from God, and that was? Circumcision. Circumcision. 
circumcision, Brit Milah. He waited to 99 years old before Brit. The commentaries ask, if he did all of the mitzvot before the Torah was given, how come he didn't circumcise himself? Abraham did all the mitzvot. Why not circumcise? He didn't know that one. There had to be one mitzvah. One mitzvah. Because Abraham is, after all, at least colloquially called the first Jew. There had to be one mitzvah, pre-Sinai, that would replicate or that would kind of foreshadow the mitzvot experience after Sinai. So there had to be one mitzvah that in an era where it was human-driven that actually came from God, and that was Brit Milah. And by the way, as we said last week, that was the only mitzvah that had an impact on the physical. So again, we see the connection. When it's outside of ourselves, it has the greatest impact. That's the nature of things. Look, we, we're, we're always stuck inside. We're, we start off stuck in ourselves. Torah mitzvah gives us the ability, post-Sinai, to suspend and surrender and let go and touch something beyond ourselves. And when we do so, we can bring it back down and create the transformation that we want. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I will stay on. I have a, uh, um, a uh, parent-teacher uh, situation. I can, I'm going to do three minutes right now, and i gotta, I got to jump off at, at 8.45. Um, thank you all for joining me tonight. I want to make a very, um, uh, a very uh, important announcement. Tomorrow night, tomorrow night, um, we're having a very special event. We are, um, we're not having Tanya tomorrow night. We're having a special evening with attorney Kenneth Feinberg, who was the special master of the, um, of the, the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund, a tremendous, tremendous individual, a very proud Jew. He's going to speak about the intersection of Jewish philosophy and law and specifically how we put a value on human life, which is a very relevant topic in many different areas. I encourage you, you will love tomorrow night's topic and tomorrow night's talk. Please join me tomorrow night with Kenneth Feinberg live from Washington, D.C. It's going to be online, streaming just for us, for our community. Um, tomorrow night at 8 p.m., check it out, intownjewishacademy.org slash life. Or just go to the website and you'll see it. It's called Putting a Price on Life. All right, now we have two minutes left. Um, jump in. Any questions, comments? Yes, Richard, go ahead. It seemed like Jacob did transform the physical with the rods because the, uh, the, the, the calves gave uh, birth to that specific type of um, animal. animal. Holy cow. Holy cow. Yeah, it, did, it did not become. It did not become. Holy cow, it did not become. The sticks didn't become holy. The cows didn't become holy. But when we wrapped tefillin today, the leather straps become holy. You can throw away your belt. You cannot throw away the ritzuot, the straps of the tefillin. I understand, but he did kind of transform the cows. The, ca the cows made it. They didn't become holy. Again, there, there was procreation, but it wasn't holy cow. It wasn't a holy animal, right? That's the difference. It wasn't consecrated. The mitzvot that we do today has an effect. And the, the only reason why is because we suspend ourselves. Is because it's not us. If it was us, there wouldn't be a transformation. That's the whole vart. The whole point is, if we're, if we're the driver of it, then, there, then it's stuck. 
But if God's the driver, that's when the magic happens. That's the point. So again, the, the takeaway from this week is, while it's good to be on board with the mitzvah, it's also good to do a mitzvah that you're not yet on board with. Try it. You'll like it. And even if you don't, it's good for you. <laughs> That's it. It's like medicine, right? It's good for you. It tastes bitter. Don't worry. It's good, right? It's going to make the transformation. All right. I got to run. Um, I Thank you all. Thank you all for coming tonight. It's great to study. We'll see you tomorrow night, hopefully. All right. Say, uh, take care. Lila Tov, everybody.